and uh, just incredible. I think very sobering on one side and thrilling uh, at the same time. So it, it's hard to, I have such a mix of emotions uh, this week looking at this, um, but um, I really ask that uh, you guys pray with Grant, would you pray for us and, and read maybe one to eight all together. Um, and let's pray together that the Lord would really use this in a way greater than we could ask or imagine because what a phenomenal passage that I think will impact so much of the way we live if we really take it to heart. So, uh, yeah. Father, thank you for this day and that we can discuss such a wonderful passage uh, together today as a local body. And Father, I do pray, as Mr. Jerry said, that you would use it um, more than we could ask or imagine and that it would change the way we think and who we are, how we act, and what we do in the coming week and how we interact with those that don't know you um, and our zeal for your gospel to spread, Father, and I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do, by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin he condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law, indeed it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Keep going. That's great. Um, remember last week we covered one to four. Josh, you had a pretty neat outline. I don't even remember your guy's name there. Yeah. But, uh, this is, I think this is helpful maybe. Uh, even uh, headed into the next couple of weeks. Yeah, just thinking about ro the first, I guess, half of Romans 8, I found this outline to be really helpful. So look and see if it squares with what you read. But if you take verses 1 through 4, this pastor called this the believer's present experience. And, of course, uh, we looked at last week, there's no condemnation. That eternal death sentence is no longer binding on the believer uh, we're also free in Christ from the law of sin and death. And then Christ fulfilled the requirement of the law on our behalf. All of, all of these descriptions of our present experience being in those first four verses. And then uh, he said verses 5 through 11, which we'll look at partly today, was the contrast. The believer and unbeliever contrasted what the life of the mind looks like for the unbeliever versus the believer. And then the eternal futures for the unbeliever. Uh, versus the believer being death versus life and peace and then the hostility and the, the no submission to God's word or God's law being that described of that of the unbeliever. And then 12 through 17, uh, the believer's duties and privileges. And we're, of course, now debtors not to live according to the flesh and we're led by the Spirit and we will suffer along with Christ. So maybe just a helpful way to think through those first, the first half of chapter eight. I found no. it helpful. I think it is helpful. Uh, 12 to 17 is certainly gonna have a lot more about, wow, now what do, how, how do we put this into action? But I am convinced that today, 
there is plenty for us to uh, think about concerning application on this passage as well. I don't think you have to go far. But this passage isn't really telling us what to do or how to live. It's more a passage that's explaining how um, one does live if they are a slave to sin, the unbeliever, and, uh, and it's devastating. I mean, today is as sad of a passage. If you went back, maybe the seventh of uh, the seventh of eight really devastating passages, and there's way more than this. But Genesis six five. Remember that the unbeliever, um, every thought was only evil all the time before the flood, and after the flood, the flood wiped out all but eight of them. But that did not change the nature of the unbeliever because that same sort of uh, just horrific um, idea of how they operate um, happens after that. Psalm 51.5 that, that we were sinful from our mother's womb. We were born into sin inherited directly from Adam. Remember Jeremiah 17.9 that the heart is desperately wicked. Who can understand it? And that is just that uh, you think about Isaiah 64, 6, that the most righteous act of the unbeliever is like filthy rags. And then you see in Mark 7, Jesus gives a list, 7, like 21 to 23, of just that all of these, all of this sin comes directly from the heart. It's not just watching bad TV shows living in a rough time in the United States. Those things aren't what corrupt us. We start that way from the very beginning. And you might remember, go back a couple pages to chapter 3 being this, the sixth one. Um, and, and, you know, it just wasn't this long ago that we were looking at it and you just, it makes you hurt for the unbeliever. Verse 10, as it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands no one seeks for God. All have turned aside together and they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. The absolutes in there are, are devastating. And then you could go Ephesians 2, 1 to 3. Many of you know that passage. Starting dead in your transgressions and your sins. And then just a list of things that the unbeliever, that describes the unbeliever. Scott, do you have... Uh, a comment here, uh, maybe starting in five or in that in general. Yeah, we can start. We can start in five. One of the things I would also say, uh, in terms of, we, you talked about First John being a place to go if you're struggling with assurance of salvation. Yes. I think Romans eight could be another place you could go. To. Even this passage here, you could go to if you're yes. struggling with assurance. Uh, and Martin Lloyd Jones said some people will struggle with assurance, uh, and that's perfectly right. Like we want to be sure. I mean, this is eternal matters. We want to be have assurance of salvation uh, because. If we lack assurance, we're going to lack joy. Uh, we're going to anxiety will come in, and we, the joy of the Lord is our strength. So we want to have assurance of salvation. So a place to go to would be, could be Romans eight to to see he's describing the difference between a Christian and a non-Christian. So I just think that could be just helpful at the outset. Mm -hmm. And it's like you said, Romans eight five to seven. It's not he's not commanding us to do something. He's not telling us to set our minds on the things of the spirit or set don't set your mind on things of the flesh. No, he's he's describing this is what Schreiner said. It's a description of the mindset of those who are of the flesh versus those of the spirit. So let me just read verse, verse 5, Romans 8, 5. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, 
But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. And I just, to get it started, I think this word set is, is crucial. Uh, so again, at the beginning, for those who live according to the flesh, set their minds on the things of the flesh. One, I'm borrowing this from another pastor, and he said you could insert different, different words. You could put prefers the things of the flesh, inclines to the things of the flesh, enjoys, dwells on, sort of delights in the things of the flesh, versus someone who's of the Spirit would prefer the things of the Spirit, inclines to, enjoys, dwells on uh, the things of the Spirit. Uh, another guy said, set the mind is to make them the absorbing objects of thought, interest, affection, and purpose. It is a question of what preoccupies us, how we spend our time and energies. I mean, what do you think about when your mind is free? That's a great question to ask. Uh, yeah, that's just to get us started on. Yeah, that's really good. Grant, do you have um, some more on that? Uh, maybe so. Um, I think what, it was interesting that Boyce sort of tried to define this word flesh. Um, he says that Paul use, uses this word for flesh, the Greek word for flesh, 22 times in Romans, and 13 of those times is used in Romans 8. So it comes up over and over in this chapter that we're studying, and it can mean many things. It can mean the fleshly part of the body. Um, it can mean the weakness of the human constitution, like all flesh is like grass, or all men are like grass. But it also can mean to be sinful. Uh, in the NIV, it's translated as sinful nature in Romans although that may not be the best translation, but it's translated that way to show that it can mean more than just our like physical flesh. Or uh, In this passage, Boyce says it's describing a man apart from the regenerative work of the Holy Spirit. Yeah. Martin Lloyd-Jones called him the, the man who's left to himself, the man that is yet to be regenerate by the Holy Spirit. And uh, just as you see how dominated they are by sin. No way out because they're dead in it. They're dead in their transgressions and their sins. They can't white knuckle it, Mark would say. They can't grit their teeth and say, I'm God. Ben used to do that when he was three and just got done with his like third spanking of the day. He'd be like, mm, I'm done sinning. It hurts too much. I'm quitting. You know, and it, it, but it's not. It doesn't happen like that. It, it, and, and it's sad um, to, to see the devastation um, that they're in here. Um, I sorry, I can I jump in? Just sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off, but just going back to what Scott, you were saying about setting the mind, it's like with this passage, there is that contrast of the believer's thinking, which leads to the outcome of life and peace, and the unbeliever's thinking, which leads to death, and their mind is set on fleshly, worldly things. And just to, you know, kind of get us thinking about the differences a little bit, one pastor said setting the mind on the things of the flesh would be someone who's absorbed or focused sharply on something they're they're riveted on the things of the world and not just like the occasional thought but they're glued to the things of the world and um, you could think about it like a, a mental posture of, of habits of thought directed towards a goal maybe it's um, an ambition to be uh, to climb the corporate ladder to achieve worldly success and notoriety and acclaim and all of the thinking is geared towards that end goal devoid of any kind of spiritual thought or spiritual setting the minds on the things of the spirit and um, so I, I think it can take a thousand forms but essentially the inner man or the inner thinking is all geared toward fleshly worldly aims and it's a difference between the unbeliever and believer and like you said I think you know maybe one implication of the, this text could be we possibly examine ourselves to see you know how uh, what what you know are we of the faith or, or is our thinking wanting to think about Christ wanting to think about God and his word the kingdom of God 
um, his will, or are we generally um, thinking more about the things of the world? Th this quote by John Owen was really helpful in um, the Derek Thomas book, um, the, How the Gospel Brings Us All the Way Home. Uh, he says, our thoughts are like the blossoms on a tree. Uh, ordinary voluntary thoughts are the best measure and indication of the frame of our minds. And Derek Thomas says, oh, John Owen is asking, what do we think about when we're not thinking about anything in particular? What is the default setting of our minds if we just let them wander? The answer to these questions can tell us much about our spiritual condition. I just thought that was a really helpful way to think about the passage. And, you know, Owen drew the application. Was it gives us a sense of our the spiritual frame of mind based on our thought life. Yeah. Josh, can you help us? I'm going to read 13.5 because you guys have both talked about assurance. Uh, this is 2 Corinthians 13.5 where we're commanded to examine ourselves. Right? It's not an optional thing. This is what we're commanded to do to see whether we're in the faith. But then after that, could you help us to kind of say, boy, our thinking, how important is our thinking? I know that's something that, um, and we will come to this further, but I don't want to get through these passages without really realizing what how we need to apply this, even though it's not telling us right now to do something, it's telling us who we are, how do we know the thought pattern that's different between the unbeliever and the believer? 13.5, examine yourself, Second Corinthians, to see whether you're in the faith. Test yourself. Or do you not realize this about yourself, that Jesus Christ is in you? And so I think I used to be a little more worried about creating doubt in the true believer. Now I think I've turned, and I don't know if rightly or wrongly, to saying, no, I, the Romans 8, 16 has become so powerful in my mind, and that's coming in three weeks here, we'll talk about it, but the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we're children of God. If you're a true believer, the Holy Spirit will continue to convince you and continue to convince you and continue to convince you. Right, it's not going to be that the, these doubts just grow and grow and grow and grow, and that, and and you may always have some, but the Holy Spirit's at work convincing you. And I believe Scott is exactly right. First John, Romans eight, great place to be. But what we're really concerned about is the unbeliever, aren't we? We're concerned that they don't have a false sense of security because I'm afraid in our world and maybe in our area right here. There's a number that may be sitting in, in that boat. Josh, why is thinking so important, kind of even when, what you've learned from a counseling perspective? Yeah, I think we should ask Grant, because he's the real expert, but I'll let him think on, on that one. I, we do, you know, it, in my program, we spend a lot of time thinking or talking about this concept of meditation. And, uh, you know, obviously the text is setting forth the contrast believer-unbeliever, but the thought life of the believer is of monumental importance and our thinking directs our actions and one of the great spiritual disciplines is meditation and uh, the world today would would define meditation maybe as sort of freeing your mind being empty-minded um, whereas biblical biblical meditation would be thinking deeply about the things of God and spiritual things I maybe I'll just flip over to Philippians 3 really quickly <clears throat> 
This would be worth turning to. Are you on the three, nineteen and twenty? Or yes. Earlier than that. Yep, I'm going right to three, nineteen and twenty. A great contrast, just like what Paul is talking about here in Romans eight. So three, I'll start in. 18 of Philippians 3 for many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears walk as enemies of the cross of Christ their end is destruction their God is their belly and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things I think that section is a really good cross-reference from 8 5 uh, for those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh and just after this section in Philippians 3, Paul goes on to exhort the believers uh, to rejoice and then to think on this, this list of things, starting in verse 8 of Philippians 4. He says, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. So um, I, maybe just to sum up all of that, I do think that the mindset of the believer, uh, Paul is directing the Philippians, and I think by extension us as well, what we think on is really important, and we ought to give some time to think on the right kinds of things. Yeah, don't you think, Josh, the indicatives before the imperatives again, right? This is who you are. This is now how you operate this is a, you're a brand new creation and that's what we're seeing here this huge contrast this huge contrast and so i think we would be amiss to say if we didn't say if you're still thinking like the old man there is a huge problem now all of us still struggle i'm not saying that our thought life is a vital thing but there is hope there that the holy spirit can weed out those wrong thoughts, those lies that continue. I struggled with them in the middle of the night last night. Lies that are not true. And I have to, is it Martin Lloyd-Jones preached, uh, Spurgeon preached to yourself, not listen to yourself, right? Scott, how many times have you reminded us? What, tell us about this contrast. Yeah, well, I'm thinking of the, the, the setting your mind on things of the Spirit. Like at conversion, what happens is this radical change. Uh, one guy just said, Jesus Christ and the things of God become your great obsession and this guy who was uh, a preacher said that a new Christian had been just converted two weeks ago and after the sermon this guy brand new Christian came up to this pastor and he said you know already all my desires are changing I desire to please God and live for Jesus Christ more than anything else in the world and he said that's Christian talk that's someone who like the spirit has invaded this man's life he's everything has changed his desires are changed so you think about dwelling on the things of the spirit uh, I think Derek Thomas said it's things that are near and close to the Holy Spirit and he said the scripture obviously the, the Bible becomes just I mean, if you became a Christian as a teenager or later, the Bible became alive. It became radiant. Like, I remember reading the Bible, Paul's letters as a new Christian thinking, what have I missed all these? I, I just Everything is popping off the page. You're just so enraptured by it. I remember I mentioned Al Martin in the sermon who, uh, before reading, he was reading the Bible out of duty. He was dry, dusty. And then when he was converted, he just couldn't wait to open the Bible. He bought that reference Bible and he clutched it to his chest, like praising God that he had this reference Bible. I mean, that's what happens at conversion. The Bible becomes ready. I remember Mark, I was thinking, you and I can talk about Mark since he's not on the panel with us. We can talk about Mark pre-conversion. You've called him a hooligan. Like, very few people know him, knew him pre-conversion in our church. I mean, he was getting in trouble. He was a class clown, always going for the joke. 
He got suspended from, from Westminster. And I remember there was a teacher of his that knew him as a non-Christian, only as a non-Christian. She was friends with Kelly's mom, Marvelin. And years you know, later, she finds out that Kelly is going to marry Mark. She's like, Mark McCandrew? No, she, she cannot marry Mark McCandrew because all she's thinking about is unconverted Mark. Like, she should not. And I would say, yes, you shouldn't have unconverted Mark. But she didn't realize that something has happened. There's an incredible thing that's happened. And I got to see it close up. You got to see it close up. And, I mean, normal conversions are amazing. But Mark, was it was unusual yeah. because Mark's tell the story that he had all this rich theology, he had all this rich teaching, but it's like all these pebbles on a, on a frozen lake because his heart was hard. The Son of the Gospel came up, and all this theological truth he said just sank down and made sense to him. And Mark, I, the way I've described it is Mark took off like this rocket ship at 16, and he just flew up in the air, and we're all trying to get around him to get some, some of his zeal, to catch some of his zeal. But one story that I'll tell, I, I'll cry about the story, but uh, he was a senior, he's 17, and I mean, just a brand new Christian at 17, and uh, it was two in the morning. My mom saw the light on in his room. Like, why is he up? It's a school night. Why is Mark up at two in the morning? She goes in, knocks on the door, no answer. She opens the door, and Mark is on his knees, on his face before God, like praying at two in the morning. I mean, this is highly unusual. But what the Spirit has invaded his life, and his life is totally different. And I'm just talking with him in that period. I know he was praying for conversion. He was praying for the spread of the gospel at Westminster. Praying all kinds of things. And he's a 17 year old kid. But I'm just like. The, when you become a Christian, and the things of the Spirit become your delight. Like, Mark never would have been on his knees at 2 in the morning uh, prior. So even just getting us started on thinking about the things of the Spirit. Yeah, good. Grant, tell us about the contrast yeah, here. That, that was really good to hear as a reminder. Um, just going back to what Josh said, I think even the non-believer knows the importance of what we think about. Because I was listening one time to a self-help guy. Bad place to be. Not the, not the greatest guy to listen to, but... I, thought what he said was decently interesting because um, he was basically saying you can change who you are by changing who you what you think about and I was like all right that's that's pretty good but what he was saying was uh, I don't remember the exact phrase but something like our thoughts become habits which become attitudes which become personality and personality over time dictates your life and I was like that is that is fairly interesting now he was you know trying to sell you this white knuckling program um, but I just found that so interesting because I, I do think that's relatively true. What we think about really affects who we are. Um, I think the sad thing here is Paul is saying that there are only two paths and the non-believer can't help what they think of or they, I mean, they are dead in their sin and they're going to think about certain things no matter what um, they do and the believer thinks about something completely different. Um, Murray says it this way, that the mind set on the flesh is to have things of the flesh as the absorbing objects of thought, interest, affection, and purpose. The mind of the flesh is the disposition of uh, including not simply the activities of reason but also those feelings and will patterned after and controlled by the flesh. And the mindset on the things of the spirit would be the exact opposite of that, things of the spirit, but the same overarching dominating uh, thought life for those things. And I think Paul is painting here two roads, not not primarily saying here, we'll, we'll hear about it later, of uh, like renewing your mind um, through the scripture, but here I think he's just painting that the thought life of a believer looks totally different from the thought life of a non-believer, and we'll mm -hmm. see that they cannot please God, they can't submit to God's law, that's total depravity, that's total inability, that there has to be this change that happened to Mark. There was no white knuckling that he could have done to change his thoughts in that direction. There was a um, supernatural thing that happened to him and his thought life totally shifted to this other path that, that Paul is presenting um, here. 
And I think it's easy to see the, the things of the flesh. You know, it would be like what you were talking about, uh, personal ambition at work, uh, for self-glory, uh, for uh, preoccupation with just increasing finances and the love of money, uh, sexual promiscuity, living a debased life and that way. We can see those, obviously, and those are the outcome uh, of, li- of death for those that focus on them. And then the things of the Spirit, I thought that was a little more interesting. What are the things of the Spirit? I think you gave a brief definition just a while ago, but all I could really come up with that they're the truths about what God has done what he says is now true, and his promises for what he will do in the future as revealed in Scripture. So I think that will be the natural gravitation for the believer. And we've seen it in all these new conversions that people radically want to know what the Bible says. What, what has God done? What does he say is true about me now? What is, it, what is going to happen in the future? When is he going to come back? What is going on? We just want to know everything we can about him. I think that's sort of the picture that's getting yeah. painted here. Man, an unbeliever just had, didn't have that, uh, that ability. Verse 6 uh, I think it was a boy said in verse 5 there's four drastic changes verse 5 his thinking right the unbelievers thinking to compared to the believers verse 6 is his state they go from death to or Scott you want to read 6 there sure for to set the mind on the flesh is death but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace yeah so, you know, Derek Tom, Thomas, and you might have read this. I hope you're reading Thomas if you haven't. He is it's so good, and it's, it's short, but it really packs a, a good punch. He says, quote, in John 1, beginning with the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And here we uh, are on a, an, another level, a dimension which the natural man has no access to that level. That was an interesting way to put that. The natural man has no access to think and their state is completely different than yours as a believer. They don't have the same access to all what both, I think what Grant shared and, and uh, you know, I just remember uh, Mark saying he prayed a prayer, how many times? Hundreds of times probably, maybe literally. And then it was even when he didn't pray a prayer that he just found himself changed. God answered the prayers certainly of your mom and dad and countless others that were praying for him and uh, and all of a sudden he's a, a completely changed man. So there's a way that seems right to the man but in the in the end it it leads to death. And that's what we see here. That's where they're headed. And they're going south so quickly. And we are God's ambassadors to let them know that this is a wrong way to go. Josh, anybody on this? Um we talked about this, but Paul, again, he's the master teacher of contrasts and setting apart not only the mindset of those who are in the spirit versus those in the flesh look totally different, but the end result. And I think maybe it was Boyce I read, there's no third category. There's no category for a worldly or, or carnal or fleshly Christian. This is the description of what it looks like for the believer versus the unbeliever, and then for for all of us, this is what it looked like before regeneration. We were uh, that that's those were the patterns of our thoughts, and that was the end result. That was the eternal destiny that awaited all of us, uh, spiritual death. Yeah, <clears throat> I I was surprised to find that some scholars, I guess, take this as 
kind of a carnal Christian and a Christian. That does, and I want to be have say this with humility, but that makes no sense from this passage. There is no zero percent chance that that's true. Scott, I mean, there is no such thing. That's a third category. That's there. Yeah, there no, is no, no such thing. No, no. I mean, this is the Bible. You think about Paul says those who are being saved and those who are perishing. Those, those are the two categories. Yeah, right. There's no middle third category the way the Bible defines it. And here, there's just two two categories: Christian yeah. and Christian. Now, it might be only one old enough to think about this, Miss Elizabeth. You weren't thinking about this kind of stuff, but that was a big battle in the '80s. You know, lordship salvation. Can you have the Lord as Savior and not Lord? And there was a huge fight for that. I don't know if it was the 80s. Is that about right? When MacArthur came out with really, really good books attacking that idea, Terry? Yeah, I just had a question. Um, I guess we'll cover it later, but doesn't it become a command later? Like, I'm looking at verse 13. That's right. Exactly right. So, I mean, I've been kind of wondering about that like, as we're talking about it. Like, yes. yeah, we don't, I don't think I can, like, let my mind go and then, you know, expect to be close with God if I'm emptying my mind. <laughs> like, That's so good. No, you're right. And I believe that I've read that verse 13 might be the only imperative in Romans 8. As interesting as it is. But that that is definitely, you know, that's really, really a good point. We're going to come to that, but that is what the, the change has to be. Anything on um, that carnal... I, I was interested that that was... Uh, a number of commentators just really railed on that. And hopefully we have here at North Avenue. Any thoughts on, on that? Let's get to seven and eight. Um, no, just come six, one one, yeah, more, come one more thing on uh, like spiritual mindedness in terms of things, things of the spirit. I said the word of God, but I think the cross of Christ, I know I'm rewinding and I, when I listen to a panel and everybody's all over it, like it can, I can, I'm sorry for messing with you guys going backwards, but the cross of Christ just becomes compelling. Like Lloyd-Jones said, you're no longer content to just communion service just to think about the cross of communion. No, you're gripped by the cross. It becomes just this, it moves you. I remember I love hearing my dad preach, even as a non-Christian, but I never got the message. He was just a great speaker, told great stories, so I was attracted to that, but I never got the message until conversion. So other speakers would come in. Yeah, man, I was just bored to tears, but other speakers didn't like them. But after conversion, we had a guest speaker come in. He preached on the cross of Christ. I moved me to tears. This was a guy that I would never have liked before, but it's because the cross, he's lifting up the cross. And they told a story, Lloyd-Jones told this story of William Wilberforce, who was friends with the Prime Minister William Pitt. William Pitt was not a Christian. Apparently, one pastor said that Wilberforce prayed every day for Pitt's conversion. And he's pleading with him to come to church, come to church, you know, William Pitt. And finally, Pitt agreed to come to church. And there was a pastor, was Richard Cecil, was preaching. And Wilberforce said he was preaching an incredible sermon, moved him to tears. I'm probably christened him, crucified. I don't know the text, but man, he, Wilberforce was just enraptured by the preaching of Richard Cecil. After the service was over, he said, you know, William Pitt, what did you think of the message? And he said, you know, Wilberforce, I have not the slightest idea what that man has been talking about. And Lloyd-Jones said, as a man can be tone-deaf to music, all who are not Christians are tone-deaf to the spiritual. That which was ravishing the mind and heart of Wilberforce conveyed nothing to Pitt because he was spiritually dead and Wilberforce was spiritually alive. And just so, it's so clear, uh, you can see that difference so clearly, especially with the cross of Christ where somebody's just like bored by it versus this is... Our meat and drink. Yeah, they have a relentless, I love the way someone put it, a relentless anti-God energy is at work in the minds of the unbelievers. Distracting them, deceiving them, dragging down their every thought into the grave. And it's like, ooh. And we all know plenty of unbelievers. So bring them the gospel. 
Josh or Grant, anything before we dive into seven? Yeah, I think just to sort of keep going with the contrast, so so we know like how bad it is for the non-believer that their end is death. And I think that's not just physical death, that's that's Spirit. final spiritual death and damnations and uh, punishment uh, in hell. But the contrast would be that the to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is is life and peace. And so there's this huge opposite contrast of life and peace. And when I was trying to figure out, you know, what does it mean life and peace? I think he's talking uh, eschatologically. I think that's that's the fancy word that I always hear for like the final life and peace. And just to sort of give a little bit on those, I think the peace that he's talking about, you could take it two ways: the subjective peace, but I think that always comes from the peace that we saw in five one, where we have peace with God. That would be peace is the antithesis. This is what uh, Murray says. Peace is the antithesis of the alienation and misery that sin creates. It's a state of tranquility. Um, The definition for it could be exemption from the rage and havoc of war, but more likely the definition here could be the tranquil state of the soul assured of its salvation through Christ and so fearing nothing from God and content with its earthly lot whatsoever sort that is. And Murray also said, no doubt the subjective effect of peace with God is what's in view here, just like we saw, but it comes from uh, the peace that we have with him and the sense of being at one with God and the tranquility of heart and mind which the sense of reconciliation evokes. And I think that's so encouraging to think about because I think the life that he's talking about here is eternal life. It's, it's life with him forever and I think that peace goes into that as well, that there's I don't know what it will be like, but I imagine it will be no threat and only perpetual uh, purpose and fulfillment in knowing God. And I think this life would be, eternal life could be, you know, simply being alive, but also I th- think more so like what how John describes it in the book of John in 11.25. Jesus says, I'm the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. I think that life is after death. It's eternal life with him. And that eternal life is John 17, 3, and this is eternal life that they know you and the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So it's not just uh, life eternal as in continual life. It's, it's necessarily that, but it's also uh, knowing God. It's, it's getting to know him more for eternity. Um, life is true life when spent perpetually fulfilling its highest purpose. And what is the chief end of man to know God and enjoy him forever? I think it was Murray that said, knowledge and fellowship with God is the highest expression of life, and that's the promise that we have for those that are in Christ and have his spirit residing in him, in us. Well, that's good. For you have been, uh, for you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you'll appear with him in glory. So that 5-1 that Josh is talking about, therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God, through the Lord Jesus Christ within, uh, that's the objective peace that then ushers in the subjective peace, the Philippians 4, 6, and 7 kind of pieces of the peace that surpasses all understanding. Josh, any thoughts, sir? I don't have anything else to yeah, add. 7 and 8. Well, this is something. Uh, and, and, and really, again, here's the description of the unbeliever that's just devastating. Um, and, what, and I used to always think four descriptions of the unbeliever. I guess that could be true. Maybe one overall description with three others that are kind of commentary um, on that. That was the way um, one writer put it. Um, verse 7. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot 
those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Oh, Josh, something from Lawson there? You had four words. Was yeah. that from Lawson? It was sure enough was from Steve Lawson. This is really interesting and good, I think. Yeah, he used the, he gave these four words as descriptions from these two verses. The first one being hostile. It's an active rebellion or could be a passive resistance. And I was just thinking about um, even my own story. Maybe there wasn't this outward active rebellion, but there was an inward sort of passive resistance to the things of God, his law, his ways. I wanted to be the, the author and ruler of my own life and, and live my own way. And uh, so I think Lawson believes that hostility could be that outward active rebellion or the passive resistance to to God. And then he gave some, some more descriptions. So look, I'm going to read the verse. Uh, For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. And then the second descriptor, for it does not submit to God's law, he said was superiority. And this is denoting an arrogant, self-elevated, prideful person who won't subject themselves to the law of God. And he pictured a person of sort of standing over the law of God instead of being under it, letting the law of God direct and guide their life. They stood above it and maybe chose what they wanted to try and obey or chose what they liked from it and then ignored the rest. They were, uh, in a sense, uh, over God's law instead of coming into subjection to it. The third one was inability. So not only is there a superiority, but there's an inability. Uh, it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. And that's the, the moral inability of the unbeliever. They, they have a stubborn resistance. And then the last word he gave was impossibility. Uh, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. They are those in the flesh ultimately cannot please God. There's nothing they can do to please God. No, inability. <clears throat> Scott, I can't wait to hear from you on this, but if you're thinking an unbeliever might say, wait a second here, I'm not really hostile to God. Maybe I might say, I don't even believe in God. How can I be hostile to something I don't even, oh no, wait, go back to Romans 1, no, right? In 18 to 20, no, they do know that there is a God. They do. They know, and they know they deserve death even, 132. So they know good and well that there is a rebellion going on that deserves death and yet they're they buy the lie they exchange the truth of god for a lie scott yeah no it's just what everybody is saying it's total depravity cannot please god I and mean, there's nothing less than total inability uh one guy said that's how deep our con- corruption and our rebellion that how, how how it was we cannot please god that was our condition our plight our identity when we were in the flesh and we were in change we hated the law we needed life i think you think about that it's just so weighty to think back and you think, well, what can possibly be the application from 7 and 8? But in thinking about 7 and 8, reminding yourself of your condition, you couldn't have done anything to get out of that condition on your own. It's all God's grace. So then you think back to your conversion whenever it was, maybe a young child, maybe a teenager, maybe in your 20s or beyond, the Spirit moved on you, took away that rebellion, writes the law upon your heart, gave you a mindset that loves and delights in the things of the Spirit. We start loving the Bible and worship and the people of God. And different people just said it's a great thing to be alive, to be spiritually alive. It's extraordinary that we're alive spiritually. But when we reflect on our condition and then come back and say, wow, God's had mercy upon me, it should produce worship. And Lloyd-Jones just said, may God give us understanding here that we may see something of the glory of being a Christian, the wonder of it all, the amazing thing that God has done for us in Christ Jesus. And then another guy just said, this is a devastating paragraph on the nature of our own flesh, apart from the Holy Spirit. In light of this devastating paragraph, we should love the cross and Jesus more 
in light of our desperate condition that we were in. So when we, you remember your condition, but you remember God's grace in pulling you from that. Oh, I should produce worship and praise. Yeah, Josh, you said that was kind of your thinking this week. Like you just thought of yourself before you were a believer. And Grant, I imagine that thought went in your mind this week as well some. what? Tell us about that. Yeah, I, I think maybe... You know, you study a passage, you're trying to learn it and understand what the the flow is. And and then just these last two, I was just thinking on, that was me. That was my state. That was who I was before Christ rescued me. And um, that's who I would have been to this day if it were not for Christ. And it's all by His grace that He did not leave me in that state of hostility towards God. You just think about human nature being hostile towards the God of the universe who created all things, who, who the psalmist says, at whose, at whose right hand there are pleasures forevermore, and yet we're blind to this God. We're hostile to him. We want nothing to do with him, but Christ overcame that, and um, God overcame that, and his grace is truly irresistible, and um, he does not leave us in that state. Can I, can I try to ask Brandon a question? And, uh, can't I, this doesn't always work, though. I, I've done this before, but thinking back to, to Grant, I remember meeting Grant the first time. I was in Marybeth in your place, and Jen and Hannah, it was somebody else was living there. I met you, met Grant after a discussion group upstairs. I remember talking to him, asking him like when he was converted. And apparently, I made him very uncomfortable with all these direct questions. He wanted to avoid me and you, is what he, what he said. <laughs> after that, I was like, I'm not sure where this guy's at. Like that's why I was just, I don't have a good feeling about where Grant Crane is that and then I remember however many months later it was Mark called me up so excited that night you got to hear this like Grant just share like yeah. just become a Christian three octaves higher oh Mark yeah is. Mark's pitch is calls excited <laughs> it's at 937 at night and it is at a different level it is the best you need a call like that because I got to return the favor with Jose like Mark was really tired when he answered with Jose I was like you're going to want to hear this and yeah. he just immediately <laughs> from half asleep to just wide awake but he called me about Grant I was like I can't wait to talk to Grant after and it was Mark's ordination service and I preached my first sermon that that. Sunday, and I remember talking to Grant in line for food at Martin Kelly's house, and I could immediately tell there's life, there's spiritual life. He was a totally different person. You could see it, and I know he, you've talked about, it was the Christ in Context, we had that retreat, uh, day thing at Jackson EMC, whatever you want to call that, and I remember Grant said afterwards, he went like out in the woods, he would just worship, he wanted to worship the Lord, like just worshiping God, and you talked about being in your apartment, just being overwhelmed like with the gospel. And worshiping, like this, just anything on that, like that change and how you were before, and what happened with, with, with new life. Um, yeah, it's, it's convicting to hear about it that I don't think about it more now. You probably have a better memory of it than <laughs> me, which is incredible. But I, I do remember that. I vaguely remember the the um, the conference at Jackson EMC, and, and your talk specifically was on the woman who I think poured the. Um, I don't remember. Alabaster the, one. Yeah, yeah, on, so. on Jesus. yeah, and um, what what was your main point from that? Something about the majesty and mercy of Jesus. That's yeah. right. He was the only person that could have said rightly, "Do not touch me." Mm-hmm. Um, but sorry, I can't remember it. Can you finish that thought? Yeah, I mean, it's like Simon was thinking. You know, I'm holier than thou. Uh, you, you should you shouldn't touch me. Is what right. Simon the Pharisee he was thinking. Jesus should have thought, thought the same same thing. You know, I am holier than now, but Jesus says, come to me, all you are weary and heavy laden. I'll, I'll give you rest. Like, the one person who can condemn us invites us and welcomes us. Yeah, and I think I remember that, obviously not specifically, but I remember the feeling of that, of just being overwhelmed that God would allow someone like me to be able to approach him. And I remember leaving there, and I was very emotional afterwards of just in wonder of how, you know, I was very 
broken over my past life and just thinking about that in detail at that time and it was overwhelming to think about how bad it was and the fact that Christ could say you know depart from me and he would he would have been totally right like who, who would want someone like me to uh, be part of his family but he, he that he didn't do that was I remember overwhelming at the time that he was inviting me in rather than and turning me away for you know the terrible person that I was but he, he invited me in and he changed me and he uh, did all these wonderful things for me um, I, I just remember that feeling of just being completely overwhelmed by that so what we're hearing is just practical um, the implications Calvin called them this is number the third one in verse 7 is his religion changes Calvin says I believe rightly called man's nature a perpetual factory of idols our ability to create an idol and worship knows no limit. You know, how about the Westminster Confession of Faith? From this original corruption, whereby we are utterly indisposed, disabled, and made opposite to all good and wholly inclined to do all evil, do precede all actual t transgressions. So it's who we are that produces um, that before we were a believer. Um, and, and you think um, that once we become aware of our sinful condition that only God can do that then divine sovereignty is all that we have left we cannot change ourselves very um, clearly in this and what a gracious and wonderful thing is it to know that what we cannot do God did through his son he's both willing and able to do that and so let's with everybody we see be a little more aggressive and Josh I'd like you to kind of close this out didn't you I, I love your thoughts of being we need to be more aggressive with evangelism don't we when you read a passage like this just that we would hurt for the unbeliever can you kind of close this with that thought yeah I just you think about everybody that we live and work and interact with this is also their state if they don't have faith in Christ they are they're hostile to God their their mind is set on fleshly things but yeah we have a, a great gospel and we have a great savior that we can point people to and um, I've, I was just reminded of your point that you've harped on so often we're eager from Romans 1 I think 15 16 and 17 obligated and not ashamed of the gospel and um, we can't just hide this news in a corner we've got to take it out to a lost world and we're obligated to do so as God's ambassadors. And I hope that it, uh, something like this kind of fuels that. It does for me a little bit, I think, to just think of the inability of the of the unbelievers. We need to get them the good news. Faith comes from hearing, hearing by the word of God. And that is how they're going to be converted, by hearing the truth of God's word. Josh, would you close this today? Sure. Father, what privilege to study and to be able to understand Romans chapter 8 and to have this text in our own language. Lord, I pray that um, we would come to understand the work that you've done in, in our lives a little bit more fully and that you would, uh, by your grace, empower us out to take this message to a lost world and help us to be eager and obligated and unashamed of the gospel. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Uh, if you get a chance to read Thomas next week, um, and it is um, 9 to 11, Lord willing. Thank you.